You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and this has been a big week for me and my family. I'm going to tell you all about it, but first I want to say I'm just grateful to all of you who enjoy this blog, who enjoy the podcast. And when I hear from you, you tell me what you liked about it, what you didn't like about it. You send me information I need. You give me your list of five. You introduce me to a new reader or listener. It's very fulfilling, and I'm very grateful. And I've always thought of this podcast as a conversation between us, whether I'm recording myself or whether I'm talking to someone else, or in the case of last week, two people. But today I have a guest I am uncommonly excited to chat with. It's Lori Gottlieb, the therapist in Los Angeles, author of the new book, which is on the New York Times bestseller list, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. So she will be here in just moments. But first, here is my list. Number one, with a bullet, it's Baby Simon. Simon is the son of my son and his wife. He was born Monday night. I guess that makes him my, 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 he's my son's son. My, I can't say it yet. He's a whole new person. He's 20 inches long. He's darling. It is so different from holding my exhibit A. But yet watching Exhibit A hold his Exhibit A is freaky and fantastic and a total surprise, even though I had at least 40 weeks to get ready for the reality of this. Number two. Now, baby Simon is still in the hospital because his lungs are not exactly clear yet. And we've all been very stressed and freaked out and worried. But the positive is... I would have done anything to take this agony away from my son. But through it all, he has become such a loving and devoted father. Now, he's only been a father three days at this point, but he is so loving, so concerned, trying to get all the information from the doctors, being there for his wife, getting the information to me. It is watching him grow up in front of my eyes. It's almost like that photography where you see a plant bloom from seed to full blossom on a science special in the course of 15 seconds. That's what it's like to see my son take care of his son. And though he's a very talented writer and director and performer, if he wants to go to medical school, I would not discourage that. He seems to have all the new knowledge of lungs and oxygen and medicine and tubes and stuff. He seems quite in command of it. Number three, through this crisis, my family has come together in a new way too. My brothers contact me constantly. They are so concerned. My other exhibits are fully concerned and willing to do anything. My sisters-in-law keep calling, and I am really just grateful for all the the sticking together and loving through thick and thin, not to mention my partner, who's been a great source of strength for me. Number four, my daughter-in-law has been a rock through all of this. 
Though Simon rearranged his mother's abdomen in ways that she could not have foreseen, she has been a great sport and a great mother to her three-day-old son. And I'd like to just say that Simon was born on May 6th, along with Archie Mountbatten-Windsor and Amy Schumer's son. I don't think we know his name yet, but this is an interesting playgroup to have, don't you think? And number five. This is unusual, but number five is the book I've been reading in between everything that's gone on at the hospital, at home, on the way to the hospital. And it's the book that we will be discussing today, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. It's been helpful to me. I recommend it. It's good reading. It's well-written. It's smart. Different stories are woven together to really most offer I don't know, like a supportive reading environment. It might make you wonder if you're stuck in a pattern of some kind or if you have been stuck in a pattern. And the subtitle is A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. And I have really found myself nodding in agreement and feeling less like, I don't know, a strange person and more like a human being. Well, this is a first for Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Number five, as you just heard, was the book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, written by Lori Gottlieb, who is a therapist in Los Angeles. It's a bestseller. By every measure, it's a bestseller. People are talking about this book. I love the book. And Lori Gottlieb is here. La, 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 la. Hi, Lori. Hi there. I'm very excited to be here. Well, it's great to talk to you, and it's fantastic that you wrote this book. I I uh, have never really been a reader of... It, it, it diminishes it to say self-help, but I guess your book is generally speaking within the self-help domain. Would you say that's right? It's funny... I don't really think of it that way, but I think a lot of people feel helped by it. So I guess technically it would be. But to me, it's really um, bringing people back behind the curtain into the therapy room and following the stories of four of my patients um, and really getting invested, I think, in their lives and their struggles and how they get through them. And then following a fifth patient, and that fifth patient is me Mm -hmm. as I experience an upheaval in my life and end up as a therapist going to therapy. So it, it, there's no, there are no bullet points or you know takeaways in the right. sense of um, I think self-help books, um, but I think that by seeing, I think when the reader sees him or herself reflected in the people in the book, that they they can't help but learn something about themselves. I think you're right. There's a place in part three, I think, where you have gone from being the therapist to being the patient, which happens throughout the book. You weave all the stories together. And you have just committed the same, not faux pas, but the same, I guess, mistaken thinking that all patients engage in, which is you want your therapist to give you the answer. Yeah. And I think and it's just so you have the awareness of course and the distance to have written about it but in the moment when you're in pain whether you're a doctor or a patient you 
you want someone to give you the answers and and help you and and uh, I think it's very decent of you to to admit that. I very much am the patient um, when I'm telling that story, and I think that you have to take off your therapy hat in order to get something out of the experience. Um, and so, you know, I do all the things with my therapist that my patients do with me, and one of them is I want him to give me advice. Right. <laughs> you know, what would you do? Who am I to make the important decisions in my own life? You decide. Right, right. Um, You're wiser. I've given you, I've given you this information for you to make a determination for my right. life. Yeah. Right. Clearly, I'm not making good decisions. So, you know, I'm going to abdicate all of my all of the responsibility and let you make the decision. And then if it goes badly, I can blame you. Right. Oh, yeah. What an added bonus. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, it's hard, you know, from the therapist side, when people want advice, I know that the version of the story that they're telling me is a very specific uh, way of including what they want to include and excluding what they want to exclude. So even if I were to give them advice based on the story they've told me, I only have part of the story. I don't have the whole story. So my advice wouldn't be that valuable because I actually don't have the broader perspective on that story. One thing you've made very clear in your book is that patients or clients lie. And that basically we're all lying even if we're not intending to lie, we're ashamed. We're, we're vessels of shame and lies, and we want our therapist to not only solve our problems for us, but to think of us as good people. Um, and that, and that uh, I found very poignant that you haven't, in your profession, there's an expression referring to the sort of last thing that a patient says at the door as they're about to leave? The doorknob disclosure, right. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think so many times, first of all, we want our therapist to like us, which is a normal reaction when you have this very intense, intimate relationship with somebody. But I think also, you know, we have our own shame, and out in the world, there's this performative aspect to what we present to the world. And in therapy, that all goes away. But I think that we still carry that with us, that if we share the truth of who we are, that we won't be liked or respected, um, you know, that someone will look at us differently. And so, um, you know, we do, we do keep secrets, and we do, I would say, lie by omission mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do, too, which is that I don't tell my therapist the entire story, partly because I'm, I don't want to think about it, and I, I, so I don't. Um, and part of it is that I don't want him to know the trouble that I'm really in. Right. Even though you want him to fix it. It's right. the paradox. Like how can you get help? Yeah. yeah how, how can, can you, you help? help? Right. Well, the thing that is so interesting is that in the patients you've selected, you have, I guess I've read somewhere that you created composites that John and Rita and so on or, or Julie are all uh a combo? They're each a combo? They're mostly not composites. There are some places where I'll put in something that didn't belong to that patient but was so similar that I wanted to put it in, um, you know, from another patient. But in mostly they're not at all composites, but they're very much disguised um, for confidentiality. Right. And did you tell your patients while you were writing the book that you were writing this book? 
So the patients that I chose, I got their permission to write about them, but also I didn't write about anybody that I was currently seeing because I didn't think that I would be able to go into a therapy session and then write about it. I felt like there was something that crossed lines there that made me uncomfortable. Right. Um, and so, um, so you know, nothing that I wrote about in the book was anything that we hadn't discussed in therapy already. There were no surprises for mm-hmm. the patients. Mm-hmm. If anything, I feel like I'm the more vulnerable one because they're anonymous and my name is there. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so anything that I reveal, people know exactly you know, I'm I'm the person with the name on the cover of the book, um, and so it was very revealing. I think for me, probably more so than for my patients. And it's come up a lot about the ethics of being so transparent, or maybe not the ethics. The how does it look? You talked about a a fellow therapist who was once seen crying in a bakery or something, and and unbeknownst to her, a patient was in the same place, observed her, and never returned to her when, in fact, she wasn't crying because she was mentally unhinged. She'd just gotten bad news about her pregnancy. So so similarly, and in a much bigger scale, you're talking about yourself in this very candid way, ugly, yeah. silly, vain, uh, brave, uh, uh, courageous, brilliant, Stanford Medical School and so on and so forth. And I guess a patient could could uh, feel, I don't know, oh, she's too vulnerable for me to get help from, or I know too much about her, or, um, oh, I've seen her at Whole Foods. I don't know what those concerns or considerations would be, or I've seen her on TV. Yeah, I... I definitely thought about that when I was writing the book, and and there's a chapter in the book called Embarrassing Public Encounters, which is when we run into patients Mm -hmm. outside of the therapy room and what that's like for the patient and what that's like for the therapist. Um, My most mortifying experience was when I was trying on bras in a department store, and unbeknownst to me, a patient was in the dressing room next to me, and the person who was helping me said, here's the miracle bra in the 34A, (laughs) ma'am. And then my patient walks out of the dressing room next to it. Yeah. um, It was, it was very embarrassing for me. Um, But now everybody knows my bra size too on this podcast. Um, But, you know, I think that there is this idea that, um, you know, this old idea that the therapist is, is a tabula rasa, a blank slate. Right. right? Right. Um, And, and we don't, share our personal lives in the therapy room unless we do something very strategic like a colleague of mine has a son who has Tourette's and her patient has a son with Tourette's and she did disclose that her son has Tourette's because this patient was feeling extremely isolated in her experience as a parent Um, so they didn't end up talking about my colleague's son but it just made the person feel like this therapist really gets my experience right these challenges but in general we don't disclose personal information about ourselves so when I was writing the book I really had to think about, well, what will this mean? The difference here is that I was a writer before I became a therapist and before I even knew I was going to become a therapist. So there's a lot out there that maybe if I had known in the future I would become a therapist, I would not have written. Um, But but it's out there, you know, because of Google and the Internet. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, And there's nothing that I'm embarrassed about. It's just simply that there is information that exists that people can easily access. Right. Um, 
But I think that what's happened since the book has been out is that, you know, some people, some of my patients have chosen to read it and some of them have not. Um, but if they have, it's, it's brought up really rich conversations about their own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things that they related to in the book, things that made them think about something that they're struggling with um, that we've been talking about or maybe that we haven't been talking about, but that now they feel more at ease to talk about because I've kind of set the precedent that it's okay to talk about these things. Well, it certainly is um, uh, revelatory to read uh, a book like this. I mean, as if there are other books like maybe you should talk to someone. If there are, I don't know of them. But to read this book and to see that you, like all of us, have Google stalked everyone from your former boyfriend to your current therapist. I mean, it's yeah. just human. As you say, your best qualification is that you're a human and just like us, and you are just like us. And yeah, it's... and I think that was really important to show. Um, you know, my therapist says to me at one point when I, I go into therapy because of um, the person that I thought I was going to marry decides that um, he doesn't want to live with a kid under his roof for the next 10 years. And that kid is my 8-year-old at the time who had not been hiding in the closet the entire right. time we were dating. Right. So it was it was quite a shock to me in my version of the story. And I say my version because, of course, when you go to therapy, there are other versions of the story that you discover. Um, but he does tell me that, you know, I, I am obsessing about Google stalking the boyfriend, and if he posts, you know, a picture of a salad in a restaurant, I immediately think, well, I meant nothing to him because he's going to restaurants and posting pictures of salads and people don't do that in the throes of heartbreak. Right. Um, and so my therapist suggests that when you feel the urge to type in his name into Google, do something different, just do something else. And what I do that night when I'm about to type his name into Google is I think, okay, I'm going to stop myself because my therapist said, stop yourself, do something different. But I end up typing in my therapist's name, <laughs> not because I intended to Google stock him, right. but because I had never looked at, you know, did he have a website or where did he go to school? Uh, right. What are his qualifications? Um, and then I, of course, go down the, the internet rabbit hole. And the most hilarious thing of all, of course, and ironic is that your patient, John, gets very worked up that his wife has been so-called brainwashed by her radical shrink, who turns out to be your therapist. Yes, that was a curveball that, um, you know, I had not anticipated Yeah, that, you know, one of my patient's wives would be going to the same therapist that I was going to. And then I was always paranoid that there was this woman that I would see when I would leave my therapy sessions who looked so lovely. And I always thought that my therapist probably liked her better because, you know, <laughs> maybe my sessions were draining him. And um, and I wondered all of a sudden, is that his, you know, I had no idea right. what his wife looked right. like. And I, I, I do not, I don't Google my patients. So you never Google patients because you just want to hear the story that they're going to tell you and the way they're going to tell you and when they're going to tell you certain things. So you never want to have information that was not provided by them in the therapy room. So I have no idea what his wife looks like. And I didn't Google him or her um, after they find out. Yeah. And after he left your practice, you didn't Google him or her. No, no, no. I, I've no. never, I don't do that. I did that with my very first patient when I was training um, because I thought it would help me understand more about something she told me in the session, um, this kind of disconnection between her massive depression and, and her seeming, you know, great success out in the world. Um, and my supervisor said, don't ever do that. And I never did it again.
I'm talking to Lori Gottlieb about her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which I have found very uh, uh, fascinating and rewarding and has made me feel like I may be a tad healthier than I thought. Maybe just a tad. I don't want to brag. Um, What does your therapist think of this book? Have you asked him point blank? We, yeah, we've talked about it. But interestingly, I didn't want him to read it before it was published. Um, because I totally understand that. You do? Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Some people say, why would you do that? Oh, my um, gosh. That's like letting, look, you, you were a journalist and, and uh, other kinds. You did a lot of different writing before you became a therapist. But you wouldn't give Jeff Bridges the profile you wrote of Jeff Bridges before it was published. No, never. My gosh, that would be terrible. So why would you have shown your shrink the book that talked about your therapy? Right, right. Yeah. Well, you know, I really wanted it to be um, for me to go off and put the book out into the world in a clean way without knowing what he thought about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, of course, then he read it and we've talked about it. And it's, it's, I think the conversations, just like the conversations with my patients who have read it, I think it just brings up all kinds of things that people have been thinking about but didn't really, haven't articulated either to themselves or the other person about the experience. Um, Because therapy is really about that relationship in the room. There's so much, you know, we we do all the training and, and, you know, take our boards and get licensed and do continuing education every year and do case consultation every week. And, you know, we do all of that. But ultimately, it's about you and the other person in that room. Right. And um, and so I think that the book, I think, brings gives people permission to talk about the relationship in the room on a deeper level. And, Laura, you um, talked just moments ago and certainly in the book, all through the book, that the precipitating event which sent you back to the couch, as it were, was this uh, upending of a relationship that you thought was going to be permanent. You have to wonder whether this former boyfriend has read the book or has been in touch. I mean, uh, inquiring minds want to know, have you heard from him since this book came out? I did. Yeah? Yeah, he sent me a lovely note, actually. Um, And... You know, it's interesting because the way the book starts out, he's the villain. Yeah. And, you know, clearly, and I talk in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Right. Idiot compassion is what your friends do. You dodged a bullet, you know, clearly something, you know, he was missing it a few was, marbles. It wasn't meant to be. It wasn't meant to be, right. So th- it feels really good in the moment. But what a therapist will do is they'll give you wise compassion, which is they hold up the mirror and help you to see your reflection in a different way and help you to see the things that you maybe aren't aware of. And so he goes from being the villain to it becomes very clear as we go through this story that, first of all, I'm not really in therapy because of him because, um, right. you know, it ends up being about something else, which it often does. But also we realized that I had a role in this too, that I was deliberately not seeing the very thing that, that he was grappling with, I was grappling with. I, there's something off about this, like about the way that he feels about kids, but I don't want to look at that. So anytime I would get a clue, I would immediately push it aside. Right. And so I was responsible too. And, and in the end, I think we both come off as very human and flawed, 
Um, but ultimately good people who wanted a relationship to work but also knew that it couldn't and didn't want to break it off. Right, right. I think that's extremely good um, representation of what you wrote and where you are. How, how long have you been practicing? So I started seeing patients in, I think it was 2007, Um, And then I got licensed a few years later because I had to do traineeship and internship and take my boards. But you start seeing patients as a as a therapy intern and then you move into your private practice or a clinic setting or whatever you decide to do. So you've been seeing patients since 2000 and about 2007, I think. So uh, do you feel this is probably a strange question, but do you feel that you're more competent? wiser, better prepared to give advice or not, or hold that mirror up to your patients now in 2019 than you were, 2007, 8, 9? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I write about my first therapy session yes. in, the, in the book. With the um, clock, where, not with the broken right, the, clock. The broken clock, and I, you know, I didn't know what to do, and I was panicking, and, um, you know, I felt like it was quite a disaster. Um and, you know, now that I wouldn't give a second thought to something, you know, whatever's happening in the room, you just deal with it in the room and you're very honest with your patient about what's happening. Um, you know, if the clock has run out of batteries, you don't have to sit there and panic. You can just say, hey, the, the battery is out and I, I want to not get distracted. Let me get another clock. Um, you know, I, just basic stuff like that that you don't know. But I also think I'm much better at helping people to see things in a way that, um that where they where they feel like you know it's not a it's not a judgment or a criticism so they can open up better i think there's so many times when you're starting out where you can see something very clearly about somebody but you're not very skilled at the style part you're really good at the content part mm-hmm. um which is i know i know the content of what's going on but the style of how do you deliver that how do you help them to see something that they maybe feel a lot of shame around or they don't agree with yet. They don't, they don't see it. Um, you know, they think everyone else is the problem, but they can't see their own role in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and also I think I learned a lot through my own therapy sessions in the book. You can see where my therapist will say something because at the time of the book, I'm a relatively new therapist and he has decades on me, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of experience. Mm-hmm. And so he'll, he'll do or say something in the room that feels so profound and effective to me that I'll then drive to my office and for the next five hours, you know, for the next five sessions, yeah. I'll say that exact same thing, you know, put my own, put my own self into it. Um, so it's not like verbatim, but, um, but it's very effective. I learn a lot from him about how to really bring myself into the room, how to be a real person in the room. I don't think anybody wants to go to a brick wall or a robot. You know, they want to go to a real person. And I think he really showed me how to do that while also being boundaried, while also, you know, not, you know, not crossing any lines, but really bringing your personality into the room. So now, could you tell me, as a now kind of celebrity author, which I think it's fair to say this book has been optioned for a series or a movie, is it? Yeah, it's been optioned by Eva Longoria for a TV series. But I should say, I I don't consider myself a celebrity author. Um, I'm really glad that the book, um, you know, is being widely read. But um, I I, I sort of cringe (laughs) at that um, idea. I just meant that now you're well known. 
Yeah. Now yeah. you've been on a lot of TV programs. You've been on a lot of radio programs and podcasts. You've been interviewed in a lot of major publications. You're speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival. You've got a big agenda now, apart from raising a son on your own and a teenager at that, and apart from your private practice. Yeah, yeah. How how are you managing the time commitments and the demands? How 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 much of your day or your week is as it was before seeing patients in in 50 minute increments? How much of your day is writing? How much of your day is other stuff? Just curious. That's a great question. When I uh when the book came out, I went on book tour. And so I did something I had never done before with my practice, which is I took four weeks off. Mm-hmm. I'd never taken that much time off. Um, and But I had to uh, in order to go on the book tour. So, um, so at that time, I was just doing book tour. I also write that weekly column for The Atlantic, the Jerry right. Therapist Advice column. Um, and so I took a few weeks off of the column. I took four weeks off of my practice. And I really focused on the book and the message that I wanted to get out about opening up these conversations about emotional well-being and not being ashamed of it and and the differences between the way that we treat our physical health and our emotional health. And that was really important for me to do. Um, But then I came back and then it was like, my son is like, you have these school forms to fill out. And by the way, here's this camp thing. And can you, you know, (laughs) and I need socks and, you know, (laughs) right, right. and, um, you know, and, and then it was back to my practice and it was back to the column, all of which I love. Right. So, um, you know, I think that there, you know, and I'm still doing, I'm still doing book tour in a different way. Like I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow to go to do something at the Guthrie in Minneapolis and. Um, you know, I have these other things planned. So I'm, I'm doing book tour, but not in the same way. Um, mm-hmm. I'm still involved with the book. And I think you just, you know, you wake up and, and here's what you have to do and, and you do it. And I, I, it's, it's challenging, but it's all good and it's all things that I'm really passionate about. So I think that makes it, um, you know, more feasible. Mm-hmm. And, and your patients are, are feeling reassured that you're back in, you're back in sync with them and so on? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely back now. And, and uh, how many know. private patients do you see in a week? It it varies. I mean, I have um, I have my regular people that I see, and then I also um, I have this consulting part of my practice where I work with people um, outside of therapy, and you know, they might be in a, in somewhere else, New York or or you know, Chicago or or San Francisco or wherever. Um, and so, um, you know, I think it, it varies based on how much of the practice, there, there are the, the core people and then there are the other things that I have going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, do you work in your office five days a week? No, I work in the office a few days a week and then I, I work from home the other days. Uh, it, it amused me how you drew that picture of your office and the, the, picture of Wendell's office. I'm wondering how how much do you let's say you're you're speaking for all therapists. How much do you worry about the neutrality and I don't know, universality of how you set up your office and what it does it reveal too much, too little? How do you manage all that? 
You know, I hadn't really given it much thought. I just set up my office like a therapy office where, you know, <laughs> there's there's a couch, there's some chairs, there's my chair. I have a desk where I work and do my chart notes and, you know, there are bookshelves and that kind of thing um, because I love books. Um, so it, it wasn't really thought out in that way until I went into Wendell's office, my therapist's office, where there was no chair in the middle. And I just stood at the doorway. There were these two sofas, and I have this diagram in the book. There were these two sofas that were like sort of, you know, in an L shape. Um, and I figured he sits on one and I'll sit on the other, but, you know, where? Which one? <laughs> on the and, other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and which one is his? And, you know, like it was, it was really disorienting. And I've been in many therapists' office as a therapist because I do case consultation in other therapists' office. All of my colleagues, you know, in my suite, I've been in all of their offices. Um, I've been to therapy before. So I'd never seen anything like that. And it was, it was really discombobulating, but it becomes part of our work. What about artwork? And do you do you have a picture of your son in your office, or do you I have don't. his artwork in his office? Right. No. So that's what's I think that that's what's different. Um, you know, like in my writing office, I have tons of pictures of family and you know and and like other objects that are very meaningful to me um, for when I'm writing. But when I'm in my therapy office, um, you know, there's there's nothing. I mean, you can see things about my personality from you know, the way that it's decorated, for example, or um, the books that I that I have out. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, there are no um, personal photographs in the office. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get to your five things, I just uh, I just want to say that the I want to reinforce how much I enjoyed reading your book. Actually, I have a little bit left. So you you might have cured everybody by the end of it. Um, but I but I see great strides in your treatment of your patients and and it's it's really great to read. I wanted to tell you that a friend of mine told me that she and her husband read the book and it convinced her husband to try to see a new therapist and it convinced her that she did not need to be in therapy at the present time. So, I love that People are learning from it, are extrapolating different ideas and, 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 you know, taking it to heart, which is fantastic. Yeah, I really wanted people to, you know, the reason I chose the stories that I chose to tell in the book um, are because they, I think that even though they might not see themselves in, on the surface with the particular patients that I chose, who are all very, very different from one another and different from me, um, I think that you can't help but read other people's stories and really get to know them and not see aspects of yourself in those stories. Mm -hmm. And so I think that everybody has a different takeaway from the book because they see a different aspect of themselves in these stories. So someone might say, like your friend, oh, I think I need to find a different therapist. Someone might say, I think I need to go, I want to go to therapy. Someone might say, you know, I think I don't want to go to therapy, but I learned something about myself. Do you think that the internet, not just Google stalking, but the fact that people are kind of addicted to their, their device, whether it's their laptop, their pad, their tablet, their phone, all of the above, earphones, do you think that that contributes to a kind of malaise that exists these days? I, you wrote a wonderful piece for The Atlantic once about 
the sort of millennial patients who have on paper a good life or, as you said, are successful in the world and yet complain about everything. Uh, do you think that somehow the digital um, the digital remove is is part of the problem? I think it's part of it's a problem for all of us. It's not just the younger generation. Right. Um, I think that no matter what people come into the therapy room for, there's an underlying loneliness, um, disconnection, even if they're surrounded by people, because of what I was talking about earlier, the sort of lack of face-to-face connection. Right. Um, you know, liking something on Facebook is very different from sitting down with someone without any distractions. Um, you know, we, we just don't have those organic ways of, of seeing people face-to-face that we used to where, you know, you'd walk outside and you'd see someone or you'd walk in your neighborhood and you'd go to someone's house. Um, it's just, it's very hard for people even to plan. You know, people try to get together and it's like, well, next month. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so I think that there's that underlying loneliness, but this illusion of connection because of social media and the ways that people do keep in touch. There's a chapter in the book called The Speed of Want, where my supervisor is talking about this very thing and how we all are moving. She said, you know, the speed of light is outdated. Now everybody moves at the speed of want. Yes. And, and you know, she said to us, you won't get today back. And it was this chilling statement that she said, but at the same time, you know, we didn't have time to think about it, ironically. Um, but I think about that all the time, especially in the book. I, I treat this woman who's this young woman in her 30s who's newly married and then gets this cancer diagnosis. And it turns out that first it's treatable and then it's untreatable. And um, I go with her on this you know, through this experience where she says, will you stay with me until I die? And I think that really looking at the way she decided to, to go on this, on this path to her death um, made me think very intentionally about my day-to-day and, you know, that statement that my supervisor had made about you won't get today back. Yes. You know, how do we go through our days? And I, I hope that the book makes people think more deeply about how they're going through their days. Right. And not just binge watch TV and, and Google stock all day, because while those are, those are fun, those are as fun as picking a scab or tweezing your eyebrows. Uh, it, it doesn't add up to much. Yeah, and I think that what most people want at the end of the day is they want, when they wake up, they want meaning. Mm-hmm. They want purpose. Right. Um, and, and, and I think so many people are, it's, it's so hard for people to sit with their feelings. If they have any anxiety or discomfort around uncertainty or they don't know what they're going to do, it's so much easier, myself included. It's so much easier to, like, get on Twitter Um, You know, binge watch your show. Um, And there's nothing wrong, by the way, with Twitter or binge watching your show. That's fun. But but sometimes it it masks some other things that maybe would help us live a kind of life that, you know, maybe we should start thinking about, given that we have a limited time here. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a good place to pause and ask you for your five things that make your life better. Your first one is emotional generosity. Right. Um, Yeah, emotional generosity was something that came to me first because I think so often we're going through our days and we forget about how good it makes us feel to be emotionally generous to other people. So it's not only that it makes us feel good when people are emotionally generous with us, 
but we actually feel better if you're standing in line somewhere and someone's in a rush and you say, hey, it's okay, you can go ahead of me. That that makes you feel so good. Um, yeah, it's sort of an oxytocin producer, isn't it? Yeah, it just, you know, just little acts of kindness throughout the day. Um, you know, when, when you're talking to your partner about something and something, you know, you feel like, I don't really have the time for this, but you give them an extra five minutes, it will feel really good. Um, or with your child, right? Right. You know, sometimes when we think, oh, I don't want to do this, but you're just being emotionally generous. You don't have to do it all day long. We can't. But even just once a day, you know, think about emotional generosity, and it will give you a boost during your day. And also, this is very minor, but don't you notice that sometimes in in movies or plays or, or, or you see an actor being particularly generous in a scene and it sort of warms your heart? It does. It makes us feel good. Yeah. Because I think that... That, that's the kind of thing that we, you know, when you see what goes viral on the Internet, it's usually somebody did something emotionally generous, and yes. that's the kind of thing everybody wants to see because it makes them feel good. But when you're the person doing it, it makes you feel even better. Excellent. Number two was broken in sneakers. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I love broken in sneakers um, because it makes me feel... Uh, just really comfortable. I just, you know, I think that you get to a certain age where, you know, you were wearing very uncomfortable shoes for a very long time. <laughs> At least I was, and I'm 5'2", by the way, so I was always wearing heels. And um, I think when you can just be at peace with yourself, it somehow signifies when you're you're walking around in broken in sneakers that I'm cool with who I am and I'm you know I just want to be comfortable at this point. <laughs> My daughter says she can't wait until she hits the Eileen Fisher stage, <laughs> <laughs> and she's only in her twenties. Um, number three is meandering conversations. Oh right, yeah. I think meandering conversations are so important because um, it's what I was talking about earlier with just being able to connect face-to-face and seeing where the conversation goes. Sometimes um, you'll, you know, you'll get together with somebody and you have no idea that you're going to reveal something to them or they're going to reveal something to you or that you're even going to talk about something that you hadn't given much thought to. And all of a sudden you guys are talking about this thing that you're both so engaged in and you had no idea the conversation was going to go there. And I think those are the most gratifying conversations in therapy Often people will come in with an agenda, you know, on the drive over. Mm-hmm. They're thinking, what am I, what's, what's going to be my opener today? What am I going to use this session to talk about? And I understand the instinct, but often when people come in and they don't have an agenda and they just come in, they close their eyes for a minute and they breathe, and then they see where their mind goes, that meandering conversation is usually the most fruitful and the one that they really needed to have. Yes, and, and you write extensively about the value of silence in your book. And I, I really appreciated that too. Sometimes when, especially when we're nervous and we're presenting, we want to yak, 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 yak. And sometimes it's just way more productive to sit quietly and think first. I, right. I try to think, think before I speak, but I'm not always successful at that. 
Yeah, and I think that there's this cliche of therapy as the therapist being, you know, saying aha uh-huh, and kind of if if that, you know, and basically being silent. Um, that's not what what I meant by silence is, as you know from the right. book. It's it's that sometimes people want to fill the gap with just junk, and they're sort of tossing more junk into into that that void. Um, the silence can be really rich and, and really full of emotion and information. And all of a sudden, if someone's talking and you don't interrupt them and you just see, give them that extra minute, um, they might feel something that they wouldn't have felt if you filled the gap with words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. Number four, a comic in The New Yorker. <laughs> Humor is is crucial, I think, to our lives. And we need to laugh, we need to be silly, but most of all, I think the comic and the New Yorkers help us to laugh at ourselves. Um, If we can laugh at the ridiculousness of being human, which is what I think a lot of the comics and the New Yorker do, we, we lose a lot of that shame and we feel less isolated in our struggles. We, we feel like, oh, it's, it's universal. You know, everybody does this. Everybody thinks this. Um, I'm not the only one. And it just, it feels so, it feels like all the air returns to the room when you can laugh at yourself. Do you have a favorite uh, cartoon or a favorite cartoon artist from The New Yorker? Oh, so many. Um, but my favorite uh, was something that my, my therapist brought up. He brought up a cartoon from The New Yorker in our session. And he said, you remind me of this cartoon from The New Yorker. And it's of the, the prisoners shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, it's open. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that so resonated with me about the ways that we feel trapped in our circumstances. And yet sometimes we don't want to get out. We don't want to be free because with freedom comes responsibility. Right. And so, you know, sometimes we don't want to look to the right or the left. We just want to sit there and be the victim and be the martyr and say, I can't get out and every, and I'm trapped in here. Right, right. My favorite, and I don't even know who drew it, um, is a Venn di- diagram. One circle says boring. One circle says interesting. And in the little crescent in the middle, it says Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, Number five, unexpected hugs from your son. I write a lot in the book about touch and why touch is so important. And, you know, people think that, um, that therapists should never, you know, there was this idea, I think, that therapists should never touch their patients. Um, And of course, you know, we rarely touch our patients. Um, but there are times when you do, um, you know, when, when Julie, the woman who was dying of cancer, you know, we would hug at the end of every session mm-hmm. um, at, at a certain point. Um, you know, there was this older woman that I was treating who was so alone. No one ever touched her. She was just, she, she went to get manicures and pedicures only so she could be touched. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I would, you know, give her a handshake or, or like to touch her shoulder as she was leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just little things like that. But, you know, I think that we, we underestimate the value of touch and how it can literally make you physically ill if you don't get skin-to-skin contact. Um, and so, you know, I make sure that even though my son is a teenager, that there are times when, I, when I'm um, permitted <laughs> um, at this age um, to give him a hug. And it just, I, I, you know, I don't think that we should... Um, I think so many parents, when their kids, boy or girl, become teenagers, because all of a sudden there's this whole like sexual component to it, you know, because they've gone through puberty, um, that we feel like we can't 
hug them as much anymore, that it's kind of weird or creepy. But I think we all need, you know, in this in this parental way to show our kids that, you know, we, we love them and we can hug them and that's okay, you know, if they're okay with it. I agree. I agree. I, I know that uh, babies in in orphanages have some, I guess, failure to thrive if they haven't been touched. And it, it just breaks your heart when you think about all the love that they could be getting from people who want children, want babies, and, and, and just that human touch does help you thrive. And uh, so does your book. Maybe you should talk to someone. Lori Gottlieb, thank you so much for talking to us. And when I say us, I guess I mean me, but I mean us. And uh, I'm 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 going to say, as somebody who met you a long time ago, that I'm proud of you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> if that I, doesn't I, sound so, too obnoxious. No, I you know I I'm so glad to have had this conversation with you, Lisa. I love your podcast, and um, and I you know I I really love this conversation. Well, thank you so much. All the best to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And enjoy your grandson. Thank you. I will do that, too. All right. Too. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week was Lori Gottlieb, therapist and author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I recommend it highly. You can find out more about Lori on her website at lauriegottlieb.com. Will that be considered Google stalking? Perhaps it will. If you enjoyed the show and get a moment, please subscribe. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and even YouTube. Thank you for listening. Until next week, stay cool and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. <laughs>